You're listening to the sermon from Sunday morning at The Crossing in Columbia, Missouri. Today, we're continuing our series through the Gospel of Luke. Most of us don't like to admit how much we are shaped by the people around us, how much influence our friends or even just broader society has on our life. Instead, we like to tell ourselves a story about our own independence, right? We're, we're independent thinkers. We're not influenced by others. We do our thing, what we want to do, what we like. We don't conform to other people's expectations. That's what lemmings do. That's what the sheep do. We love to tell ourselves that story. But that story belongs in the fiction section of the library, the true story, what belongs in the nonfiction section of the library, is the power of social conformity. Social conformity has so much power, more than we realize, and it can be used for good or for bad. There's so many ways to prove this to you if you need a little bit of proof, but let's have fun with it. Let's watch a video. The, the only thing you need to know is that the woman they're focusing on at the beginning, she's the only one who's not in on the gig. Let's watch. We set up a hidden camera experiment to see if this woman would stand up at the sound of this tone simply because everyone else is. You might be thinking you'd never go along with this. Or would you? After just three beeps and without knowing why she's doing it, this woman is now conforming perfectly to the group. But what happens if we take the group away? Elaine, please. Okay, now she's alone, the crowd is gone, and nobody is watching her, except our hidden cameras. What do you think she'll do? She's now conforming to the rules of the group without them even being there. Now, watch what happens when we introduce another outsider who doesn't know the rules. Have a seat and they'll be out in just a couple minutes. Thanks so much. Think she'll teach the new guy what to do? He's like, what are we doing here? And he asked her, he said, why are you standing up? And did you catch what she said? Well, everybody was doing it, so I thought I was supposed to. 
If you keep watching that video, they bring more and more people into the room who don't know what's happening and they hear the beep and they watch these two stand up and they all start standing up. And all of a sudden there's this new norm that's created. Whenever we hear a beep, we stand up, even if we don't know why we're doing it. What drives that? Well, there's this human need, this, this human desire to fit into our surroundings. Right? To, to be like everybody else, to not stand out, to not be unusual. And that's why it's so hard to follow Jesus. That, that human desire to fit in makes it incredibly hard to follow Jesus because Jesus' kingdom runs counter not only to what is inside of us, our own sinful nature, but it runs counter to the cultural pressure that tries to conform us into its image. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus is going to tell us about his kingdom values. And I think you're immediately going to see this is not the same thing that our world values. But let's go there. Luke chapter 6, verse 20. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now. For you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. Jesus' kingdom values turn all of our values inside out and upside down. What Jesus is saying here by the word blessed is he's saying, here is who flourishes in God's kingdom. He's not saying that everybody he describes somehow has God's divine stamp of approval. And he's not saying, if you do this, then you will be blessed. No, when he says you're blessed, blessed are the poor, what he's saying is, is he's describing who flourishes, who thrives in God's kingdom. He's describing the good life. So according to Jesus, the good life belongs to the poor. The good life belongs to those who weep, those who hunger now, those who are hated. And you can see immediately how out of step that is with our own culture and how we think about the good life. Maybe last Sunday night you watched the Grammys, or maybe tonight you'll watch the Super Bowl, or maybe politics is more your thing, or maybe you find yourself scrolling through Instagram all of those have their own definition of the good life, their own definition of who it is that is blessed. So if we kind of put all that together and we step back and said, who does our culture say is blessed? I think we'd come up with a list, something like this. Blessed are the rich, for they will have lots of cool experiences. Blessed are the well-known, because they can always get free tickets and the best seats. Blessed are the attractive, for they will be desired. Blessed are those who party, for they know how to have fun. Blessed are the winners, for they will be celebrated. Blessed are the ambitious, for they will make a name for themselves. Blessed are those who demand their rights, for they will not be overlooked. Blessed are the outraged, for they will be heard. Blessed are those who are true to themselves, because they will be called authentic. Blessed are the powerful, for no one can hurt them. See, as Christians, we're trying to follow Jesus, and 
live by his kingdom values in a world that has a very different definition of the good life. And so what we find is that we're all that woman in the waiting room. That we're living our life, we're sitting there watching everybody around us and what they do and how they get rewarded and, and, and what happens to them and their life and what they value and what earns respect and credibility in the world. And we're sitting there watching and all of a sudden we find ourselves conforming. All of a sudden we find ourselves standing up whenever we hear it beep, pursuing the same things that everybody is doing around us. We, we say, well, everybody else is doing it. I thought I was supposed to as well. Because there's something that just feels better if we just fit in. We're now in Luke chapter 6, so we've made our way through five chapters of this gospel. I just want to ask you, whether you've been here on Sunday mornings or you've been going through the devotional workbooks, I just want to ask you, who is it that Jesus is impressed with in the gospel of Luke? So far, I mean, only through five chapters, but who is it that gets Jesus' attention? Who is it that Jesus puts the spotlight on? Who is it that Luke says stands out? Well, let's just think about it here for a second. In chapter one, it was an old childless couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were the parents of John the Baptist. And another person that was honored was a young engaged woman, Mary, from a a small hick backward town. In chapter two, the people who are highlighting the spotlight is put on them are, are a group of shepherds. Then in chapter four, it's outsiders, foreigners, people who they didn't like. And the foreigners were a widow and a leper. And then in chapter five, the people that are honored are are a leper, some fishermen, a tax collector, and a paralyzed man and his friends. These aren't the people that are honored in our world. These aren't the people that we think has the good life. They're not the people that we would call blessed. No, in our world, in our culture, the blessed are the strong, the blessed are the smart, the blessed are attractive, the blessed are the well-connected people. But what if our definition of the blessed life, what if our pursuit of strength and and attractiveness and, and connections and power, what if it's that that keeps us from the kingdom of God? What is the path to the kingdom of God? What is the path to a deeper relationship with Jesus? What if the path is a path of dependence and repentance and sorrow? See, Jesus said, blessed are the poor and blessed are those who are hungry and blessed are those who weep and blessed are those who are hated. I think what he's saying to us is blessed are the desperate. Blessed are those who have come to the end of themselves. Blessed are those who don't have enough resources. Blessed are those who no one else honors. Blessed are the marginalized. Best, blessed are the overlooked. Because why? Why are the desperate blessed? Because maybe in their desperation, they will turn to Jesus. Maybe you've heard it said that the world is tilted toward the powerful. Like the powerful have an advantage because the world is tilted toward them. Things go better for them. Well, the world might be tempted to the power, tilted toward the powerful, but God is tilted toward the underdog. God is tilted toward the overlooked. The Catholic theologians had a, had a phrase for this. They called it God's preferential option for the poor. 
And all they meant is that as you read the Bible from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, what you can't help but notice, I mean, everybody can see it right there, is that somehow God's heart goes out in a special way toward those who are marginalized, those who are overlooked. It goes out to the poor, it goes out to the foreigner, the immigrant, the widow, the disabled, the orphan. That God loves everybody, but, but somehow he loves these people even more as out possible. He has a special place in his heart for them. He's, he is uh, pursuing them. Somehow there's like a spiritual advantage of being marginalized. What, why would that be the case? I mean, he started out by saying, blessed are the poor. What, what's the blessing there? Why is that the good life? Are there spiritual advantages to being poor? Is there something about being poor or being needy or being desperate that makes you more open to God? Well, a theologian named Monica Helwig came up with a list of advantages, spiritual advantages of being poor. She said, the poor know they're in urgent need of redemption. The poor know that they depend on God and powerful people, but also one another The poor rest their security not on things, but on people. The poor have no exaggerated sense of their own importance. The poor can distinguish between necessities and luxuries. I don't know about you. Maybe you don't consider yourselves poor. Probably not a lot of people in this room do right now. But you've probably had times in your life where you've had less than you do now. At least comparatively in your situation, in your own life, there are times when you've had less. Don't you think these kind of have the ring of truth to it? That maybe you used to be able to distinguish necessities and luxuries easier when you didn't have as much. The poor can wait because they have acquired a dogged patience born of dependence. The fears of the poor are more realistic and less exaggerated because they already know that they can survive great suffering and want. When the poor have the gospel preached to them, it sounds like good news, not like a threat or a scolding. The poor can respond to the call of the gospel with a certain abandonment because they have so little to lose and are ready for anything. See, I think what she's doing with that list is helping us see that poverty, being in need, desperation, trains us to be more open to God's grace. Being needy and dependent make our heart more open to God's love. Now, if that's all that Jesus had said, if Jesus had just come out and said, blessed are the poor, the hungry, those who weep, the hated, that would have been a lot. I mean, that would have left us with a lot to think about, going home with a lot to chew on. But maybe you're saying, well, but, but what about the people who aren't poor? Maybe you go, there's no way anybody in the history of the world could call me poor. So what about the people who have stuff What about the rich? Well, Jesus is really glad you asked that question because he didn't stop here. He pushed on. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. I thought that was the goal to be spoken well of. And now Jesus says, woe to you and everyone who speaks well of you, for this is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. 
If blessed means this is the good life in God's kingdom, this is who flourishes in God's kingdom, then woe means a deep, inconsolable misery. Jesus' values, Jesus' kingdom, turn all our values inside up and upside down. So why is it woe to the rich? Like, what's up with that? Why woe to the rich? Philip Yancey says we could go back through this list and just see how it sounds with the rich. The rich don't know they are in urgent need of redemption. Isn't that true that the more you have, the more everything doesn't seem quite as urgent when it comes to spiritual things? It seems like you can always put it off. The rich don't recognize their dependence on God or others. I mean, why would you need to if you have lots of stuff? You, you can depend on you. The rich rest their security not on people, but on their things. The rich have an exaggerated sense of their own importance. Can you see that in your own life, that sometimes you think you're more important than you are? The rich have trouble distinguishing between necessities and luxuries. The rich can't wait because they're used to getting what they want when they want it. The rich have a lot to lose, so their fears are unrealistic and exaggerated. When the rich hear the gospel preached to them, it sounds like a scolding. The rich have so much stuff that it makes it hard to sell out for Jesus. So where are you? I mean, you see this coming, I know. Do you have the heart, the perspective, to see yourself as poor or as rich? As you read through these, do you resemble the attitude of the rich or the poor? Like, do you quickly acknowledge your need? Do you recognize how dependent you are on God and others? Where's your security? Like, what's it in? Ever think too highly of yourself? Where do you fall in this? What's your attitude? Can you distinguish the difference between necessities and luxuries, or have you lost that ability? Do you find yourself patient because you know what it's like to go without, or have you gotten kind of an impatient attitude about life because you're used to getting what you want when you want it? And you kind of see in church history why there have been groups of people who have taken a vow of poverty, like willingly said, I want to live on less. I want to do without. They did that because they know it's hard to be rich and dependent. It's hard to be wealthy and humble. It's hard to, to have a lot of stuff, to have a lot of power, to have a lot of beauty, to have a lot of natural gifts and not trust in them. Jesus said this in Luke 18. He said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's hard to have a lot of stuff and to be humble and dependent and needy and desperate. Now, Jesus is not saying that somehow the poor get salvation through their poverty. He's not saying that, that poor people aren't sinners like everybody else. No, salvation is for uh, all sinners, and that's all of us, and it's only found in Jesus. 
And, and Jesus is not saying that rich people can't see their own need and their own brokenness and cast themselves on the mercy of God. He's not saying that rich people cannot be faithful Christians. So what is he saying? Well, he's saying that, that, that people who are poor, people who are needy, people who are desperate, well, they have a heart that's more open to God because they see that they can't do life on their own. And that rich, wealthy, attractive, powerful people tend to rely on their natural gifts. And that keeps them from the kingdom. And this is all over the Gospel of Luke. It's not just in chapter 6. I mean, here's Mary after she's told that she's going to give birth to Jesus, the Messiah. She has this song. And part of the song is, he has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. And, and here's a parable, the end of a parable that we're going to look at in a couple weeks. It says, The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they don't mature. Like their spiritual life is just choked out by the riches and pleasures of this world. And then Jesus gives a warning in Luke 12. He says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So where does that leave us? I, I don't know your story. I mean, maybe you think of yourself as poor. Maybe you are. Maybe that's the right way to think of yourself. I, I would suggest that probably most of us in this room aren't. And especially if you compare it by first century standards that the New Testament was written in, then I definitely think compared, no, we're the rich. So where does that leave us? Where does it leave you? I mean, can you read those verses and not feel just a bit convicted? I want you to know that as we go through the Gospel of Luke, we're going to see rich people follow Jesus we're going to see rich people cast themselves in, uh, on Christ and acknowledge their need and follow Jesus and use their wealth and their power and all their resources to build the kingdom of God. We're going to get to those stories in the Gospel of Luke, but we're not there today. No, today we're in Luke 6. And so instead of skipping ahead to the stories that make us feel better about ourselves, we just need to sit and hear Jesus say, Blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, and the weak, and the hated, and the weeping, and woe to the rich, woe to those who are well-fed and have a great reputation in this world. But still, where does that leave us? King David, he wrote part of the Psalms, and he says this in Psalm 34, 6, this poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. Now, King David, right? He is fabulously wealthy for his day, about 1,000 B.C. He, he is fabulously powerful. He, we're told that he's a, he's a good-looking guy. So he's got it all going for him. So how can he say this poor man called when he sits in luxury? Well, he's not financially poor. But I think what he means here is that when he calls himself poor, is that he's saying, I can't do life on my own. I might have a lot of wealth, I might have a lot of power, I, I might have a lot of what the world values, but, but I can't do life on my own. I am needy, I am dependent on God and his grace. 
So I'm calling out to God. This poor man is calling out to God because it's God that saves me from all my troubles. See, what, what King David is doing here is he's saying, I'm not going to let my wealth, I'm not going to let my power, I'm not going to let my privilege keep me from the kingdom. I'm going to resist it all. Yes, I have it, but I'm going to resist it and see myself as God does, as poor and needy and desperate and call out to him. You ever heard the, the, the saying that Christianity is a crutch? Like maybe somebody would say, hey, do you need like a crutch? Like, are you, is Christianity a crutch for you? And a lot of times when Christians hear that, we kind of get defensive. We're like, it's not a crutch for me. I don't need a crutch. But I wonder why. Because I think the answer to the question, is Christianity a crutch? The, the answer is yes, absolutely it is. But can I ask you a question back? Why is that a bad thing? Like if Christianity is a crutch, why is that a bad thing? Because when I see people out walking, you know, and they, they, they have using crutches to get around, I don't go, well, that's stupid. You know, like that's bad. That's dumb. I don't do that. I mean, when I see somebody with a crutch, I think, well, that's kind of helpful, right? I mean, so why is all of a sudden a crutch bad when it comes to Christianity? And, and I think the answer back would be, well, it, if you need Christianity, if you need a crutch, then you must be a weak person. Like you're weak psychologically or you're, you're weak emotionally or maybe you're weak intellectually and you can't handle life on your own. And, and, and so again, Christians go, no, that's, that's not me. No, not me. I'm, I'm smart. I'm, I'm, don't, that's offensive to me because I'm strong and I'm smart and I'm capable and, and I can do life. And that's the exact attitude that keeps us from the kingdom. That self-sufficiency, that I can do this on my own, that no, I don't need a crutch. I don't, I, no, that's the attitude that keeps us from the kingdom. Philip Yancey tells this story. He, he's uh, going to speak at a conference in Europe with uh, a ministry that works with prostitutes. It works with a lot of marginalized people, but this one was prostitutes. And he goes, yeah, I'll come, but I want to dialogue with them at the end and hear their story. So he does that. At the end of the conference, he's dialoguing with some of these former prostitutes, and he's just asking them questions about their story, their life. And then he, he says, I got one more thing. I want to show you this verse. In Matthew 21, Jesus says to them, the them are the Pharisees and the religious leaders, all the moral and good people. He says, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. So Philippians, he shows these former prostitutes this verse. He goes, no, what do you think Jesus meant? Like, why single out prostitutes? And he says this kind of uncomfortable silence. Like, it goes on longer than, you know, you're comfortable with. And and finally, this one woman, she's Eastern European, her English isn't that great, but she's a, a, a former prostitute. And she says this, everyone, she has someone to look down on, not us. We are at the low. Our families, they feel shame for us. No mother nowhere looks at her little girl and says, honey, when you grow up, I want you to be a good prostitute. Most places, we are breaking the law. Believe me, we know how people feel about us. People call us names. Whore, slut, hooker, harlot. We feel it too. We are at the bottom. And sometimes when you're at the low, you cry for help. So when Jesus comes, we respond. Maybe Jesus meant that. You know, maybe Jesus did mean that. 
When Jesus said, blessed are the poor and the hungry and the weeping and the hated. When Jesus said, blessed are the desperate. Maybe what he meant is that when we feel our need and our brokenness, that's when we're closest to the kingdom. And when we feel rich and wealthy and powerful and in control, all of that is leading us away from him. See, we're that woman in the waiting room. Everybody around us is living by this other definition of the good life. Like, blessed are the powerful and blessed are the rich and blessed are those who uh, uh, have all going for them in this world. Blessed are those who are on the stage of the Grammys and blessed are those who are at the Super Bowl and blessed are those who look great on Instagram and blessed are those who get great grades and get into the best schools and get the best jobs. That's the blessed life. That's the life I want. And everybody's doing it and we're tempted just to follow. And Jesus says, no, hear my voice. Follow me. In your poverty and your desperation, cry out to me, for I will save you from your troubles. Amen. We hope this sermon was encouraging. You can always visit our website, thecrossingchurch.com, for more sermons and resources.